In this episode, we speak with Joe Britton. He's the executive director of the Zero Emission Transportation Association, or Zeta. They're working to make all new cars in the U.S. be electric by the year 2030. We discuss everything from the current automotive landscape from impacts due to COVID, along with the current Biden administration and beyond. He shares how his team is working to make Zeta's vision a reality by the end of this decade. Joe, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, appreciate you having me, and I'm always thrilled to talk about electrification in the transportation sector. Well, I think what you're working on is awesome because it's such a, it's been a topic that people have been talking about for so long, and it just seems like within the last 12 months, 12 to 18 months, that there's finally getting traction in this area. You're seeing it globally with what's going on in China and Europe with a lot of these new kind of uh, laws and kind of mandates for where they're trying to move the industry. Mm -hmm. And it's really great to see what you're doing here domestically. And I I would love to just for you to give a quick um, overview for those that might not be familiar with your work and what you're trying to accomplish today. Yeah, so the Zero Emission Transportation Association, um, we started about a year ago. A lot of that was kind of getting it up and running and, and, and recruiting folks to be on board. But there's been a lot of excitement. I think, like you mentioned, the timing has been right. But, you know, we're now at 53 companies. It's, it's folks in the, you know, the, the OEM, so the you know, Lucid, uh, Faraday, Lordstown, Rivian, Tesla, We've got battery folks like Panasonic and some recycling companies, uh, all the you know major charging uh, companies in the country, and then some material supply folks of so lithium and cobalt and copper, which are a key piece of obviously advanced batteries, and then a host of utilities. And so we've come together uh, to support a pretty ambitious goal, which is that every vehicle sold by 2030 ought to be an EV. And that's, you know, a lot of times when you talk about EVs, people think about the light duty side, but we actually think all eight classes of vehicles ought to go electric. Um, and that's a, an aspiration that has just garnered a lot of, I think, support and attention. I think the new administration plays into that. But, you know, you know, we, we think about our goals for 2050 and wanting to be, um, you know, net zero, not only in the power sector, but in the transportation and, and throughout our economy. In order to get there, if you think about it, you've got to get to nearly every vehicle uh, sold by 2030, maybe 2031, 2032. Otherwise, you're going to have people pulling up to the gas station in 2051 and 2052. And we know, at least from a, a climate standpoint, we can't be there. And in the interim, all the other benefits that an electric vehicle provides, which is you know fuel and maintenance savings, um, you know lower uh, mobile source pollution for frontline communities, uh, it's a real public health crisis. And then if you think about the domestic manufacturing and the innovation and, you know, and the job creation potential, um, the electric vehicle, again, through all eight classes can really be an answer to a lot of, you know, challenging questions that we face right now, which is why we're excited to, to advocate for it. So let's take a quick step back and, uh, you're doing this awesome work at Zeta. It's really making waves everywhere. Um, and a lot of people are kind of talking about the initiative. Can we take a step back and learn a little bit about how you started this and kind of what you've been leading up to Zeta and your background in general, Joe? Yeah, so yeah, I, I started in the U.S. Senate uh, in 2003 and uh, didn't leave uh, for nearly 16 years. I, I did a, a brief stint with Secretary Vilsack, where I managed the Forest Service, the Natural Resource Conservation Service, and then the Farm Service Agency for Vilsack. But um, otherwise, you know, the rest of my 
adult life, I like to tell people I walked through the doors of the Hart Senate office building and uh, worked for three great members. I, my home state senator was Ben Nelson. Uh, I then worked for Mark Udall from Colorado. Um, his wife, uh, Maggie Fox, was actually Al Gore's uh, chief of staff for the Climate Reality Project. Um, and then, um, you know, like I said, a stint with Secretary Vilsack, who's now back at USDA, the Department of Agriculture. And I was chief of staff for Martin Heinrich from New Mexico for the last four and a half years. And, um, you know, really spent the last decade doing climate and conservation work. And the transportation sector to me is really, really exciting because, one, it's the number one emitter of carbon emissions um, in the in our economy. And two, if you if you think about kind of the investments and the standards that we're, we're uh, seeking to make, the transportation sector is the biggest opportunity to decarbonize. And so, you know, again, you can come at this stuff from a lot of different ways. I happen to, you know, come at it from a political uh, entry point, but it's just as important for local communities. It's just as important for consumers. Um, I just, uh, you know, providentially found myself um, uh, leaving public service and finding this really opportune time to, you know, have the support of such a great collection of folks that are driving the electrification movement. Great. And just to kind of go a little more in depth, when you go and look at kind of what Zeta stands for, there's quite a few different policy pillars of how you're looking to kind of make these impacts on the public level. Can you share uh, what a few of those are and what you're working on today around those pillars? Well, there's 34 of them, and I'll just spend the next 45 minutes going through those, <laughs> if that's okay. Um, we, we, so we, we actually, you know, the reason that we have such a diverse, um, you know, platform is we want to make room for a lot of members of Congress to be bought in and have opportunities to lead on this. Um, so there's a host of recommendations that we're making that we think really drive the um, the transportation electrification kind of movement forward. But the big drivers really are the consumer incentives on the light duty and then the medium and heavy duty side. And so what that looks like is a kind of a reformed 30D tax uh, incentive, which is the consumer incentive right now. So it's the $7,500 um, tax credit that you get if you purchase an electric vehicle. Right now, both GM and Tesla are capped out. It's creating kind of a weird in, um, and, and maybe perverse incentive, which is that we're telling Americans that if they buy a domestically made car, they don't get the credit. But if they buy an import, they do, just because of the way the caps are set. So we want to get rid of that cap. Um, we think there ought to be, and there's been uh, good progress in both the House and the Senate on some secondary market and even vehicle exchange incentives to, again, drive adoption in the light-duty space. In the medium and heavy-duty side, we're advocating for a 30% investment tax credit. And that's not for the manufacturer, that's for the off-taker. So whether that's a utility, whether it's FedEx, it could be a, a small municipal fleet, they get a 30% tax credit for the purchase of a medium or heavy-duty EV. The other thing that we do is there's a 12% excise tax, which is essentially a sales tax that the federal government levies on medium and heavy duty vehicles. And so we, we also think that, you know, given the public interest of zero emissions, we ought to suspend that 12% federal excise tax for medium and heavy duty vehicles as well. And then what you need, so that's what you know drives the vehicles, drives adoption. You obviously need to build out then the, the charging infrastructure to get there. And so we're advocating for big federal investments in charging infrastructure. And, you know, many folks are going to charge at home. So 70 to 80% in the light duty space, it's going to be a single family home with a level one or level two charger. But those other use cases are what we really want the federal government invested in. And that's transportation corridors, uh, on-street parking, muni parking, uh, multi-unit housing, um, sub-fleet applications. 
And so that's where the federal government can provide a lot of leadership and resources to help close the gap on charging. And then the final piece that I will leave you with is that, you know, we really believe that EPA uh, needs to and is going to be pursuing strong greenhouse gas and fuel economy standards. And so if you look back, the previous administration had unraveled many of the fuel economy standards, uh, performance and emissions uh, based that um, was driving electrification. And it's important because it's a market signal. So you need to have that strong, um, I think, standard set by the government to make clear to both the capital markets and, uh, and to those that are manufacturing and driving and creating new um, opportunities for EVs that this is something we're going to do and fully transition in the next 10 or 15 years, not the next 40 or 50 years. That's great. And I, I think what's really great about your organization is you kind of hit the space hard. It's not just having, obviously, the big names like Rivian and Tesla and Lucid as a part of this. It's also kind of going across the whole supply chain. Uh, when you go to the website, you can see it's not just the companies it's all or the EV manufacturers. It's also the infrastructure. And it goes even further down to like mining and other materials who are mm -hmm. part of this whole conversation. Um, with this kind of full frontal approach, um, what, what, what do you see as, when, in your conversations, where do you see in these supply chains that people might have like the most, um, uh, just maybe uh, misinformed or what, what still kind of stands out as some of the kind of the um, maybe legacy rumors and stuff like that, sure. that in these conversations, you're starting to see big shifts um, in areas that having this full kind of supply chain approach with Zeta can really help address those um, front on? Well, there's there's a few. I mean, you know, people talk about range anxiety. I think most of the time it's more about change anxiety. You know, people are just getting used to something that is new. Um, we are going to, I think, see as, as automobiles uh, in the in the kind of the advanced vehicle space, you know, grow to, you know, a, a lower uh you know, dollar amount per kilowatt. So right now you think about on the cost side for a battery, once you get to about $100 per kilowatt hour for a, a battery, that's a basically a price parity with an internal combustion engine vehicle. So we're, we're blowing right through that in the next two or three years, it's going to be 75 or $60 per kilowatt hour. And so on price alone, we will be out competing internal combustion engine vehicles. And as we do that, you know, what that means is that, you know, also the range is going to be increasing. Um, you obviously are, you know, consumers are price sensitive. And so you don't want to have a battery pack, um, you know, that, that prices consumers out of the vehicle. So as that cost per kilowatt hour goes down, so does the potential um, you know, ability to grow the battery size in an efficient way and to have ranges that are four to 500 miles. So if you think about your average, you know, sedan, if you're going to fill up with a, you know, a 16 to 18 gallon tank, you know, you're going to be coming in at, you know, 390 to 420 range. And we're going to be exceeding that with many electric vehicles in the, in the future. And so if you combine both a lower price point on the upfront costs, lower fuel service and maintenance costs, and a range that exceeds that of an internal combustion engine vehicle, for the consumer, it's just going to make enormous sense, both from an initial cost standpoint, but then the total cost of ownership. So I think that's really going to change, you know, the culture around electrification. And the other thing, and I don't know if you've, um, you know, uh, you know, driven many of these, certainly the newer models, the torque and the performance on these things is nowhere, um, you know, they just outcompete an internal combustion engine in a host of ways. And so, you know, they're funner to drive. It's a better experience. 
uh, and the technology on these things just are, are far superior to an internal combustion engine vehicle. With uh, a lot of what Zeta's working on, and even this conversation we've already uh, had today, a big kind of theme is around domestic manufacturing and production. Mm -hmm. uh, can you share some of the areas where you're just getting a lot of traction and kind of the interest to really build upon what Zeta's doing? Yes, I mean, a full you know pillar of our plan is encouraging domestic manufacturing. And I think you know, our view is that we have to go forward with strong incentives to build a capacity here for not only the vehicle, but the components and the materials that we need for advanced batteries. And so if you think about, you know, the full ecosystem, we have the capability to do it here. Um, it's just a matter of building it out. And I think a couple examples that are really unique. If you look at the Rivian uh, plant, it is a former Mitsubishi plant, internal combustion engine plant that was shuttered. So Rivian's taking it over. They've invested hundreds of millions of dollars and are going to employ thousands of people. So that's a, you know, a true success story. Uh, Lordstown uh, in Lordstown, Ohio is the same story. It was a shuttered Chevy Cruze plant that they took over. They're putting in an enormous amount of investment, fusing into the ad economy and creating jobs. And, you know, those are going to be jobs that are here to stay. They're good paying jobs. And I think that's, you know, and it's in some ways a, a turnaround. That's that's how that's a community that was left behind that is now going to be reemploying those very same individuals in this advanced vehicle space. Um, the other thing I think, you know, you're implying um, on the domestic side is, is, is materials. And so we actually have in the Carolinas and in Nevada a, a host of lithium plays. And, and so that's a, an important part of the future. Um, we also have the ability, um, you know, to produce some cobalt. There's copper production here. So those are also domestic manufacturing jobs. And many of them are in kind of your former carbon community um, that, you know, that I think as we make a transition to a, a, a cleaner or net zero economy, those former carbon communities are especially important to, you know, ensure that we're creating additional or supplemental economic development. And we can go and do that as we think about the material supply side of an electric vehicle. Yeah, I love the term you used earlier, change anxiety. So to kind of play on the inverse of what you discussed, can you share some of the, um, maybe some of the road bumps you're running into, but are able to kind of bring people along? Or what, what are some of the challenges that Zeta is seeing and pushback maybe from the traditional um, combustion engine and fossil fuel industries? Well, I mean, so there's, you know, there's a, a direct assault that's occurring uh, right now. The, you know, the American Petroleum Institute and uh, Petroleum Marketers Association, uh, they've created a, a group called the Transportation Fairness Alliance. It's like a, it is a totally D.C. named outfit and front group. But, you know, their goal is to go and, you know, slander EVs and utilities and charging companies. And so, you know, we have to be out there on the playing field and, and fight back against some of the false narratives and kind of pull tested talking points that are out there. And, you know, breaking through that, um, it's, it's, it's a little easier when you're on the right side of the issue. Uh, but being under-resourced and outgunned certainly makes it a challenge. But the more that we can go out there and actually tell the story of, you know, whether it's the consumer benefits, the public health benefits, the decarbonization, the job creation, the American competitiveness, these are all things that are part of the future and are part of the transition that we're going to make. Um, but, you know, it's about going and engaging with those communities and making sure that they see electric vehicles as right for them and their family and, and for the, you know, the, the local economy. Yeah. And I think those are all point, great points to call out. And for people listening to this, what recommendations do you have to either 
get involved with Zeta or do you think just on the kind of like in a grassroots way that they can make the biggest impact to help with some of these current uh, issues? Well, certainly we would invite them to go to Zeta2030.org and sign up for our newsletter. Uh, we're going to be increasingly relying on kind of our community to help with advocacy. So not only do we um, represent or made up of you know folks in the sector, but we're made up of a, a real army of people that are advocates for electric vehicles. And we partner with some of our uh, colleagues, whether that's EV Hybrid Noir, who uh, represents the black and brown EV owners and operators. You've got Plug in America. Um, you've got a, a host of other groups that we're constantly engaging with and strategizing on how to advance electrification. And so, you know, if folks are interested, we would gladly have them enlist and be part of the advocacy campaign. Great. And now, now that we've kind of built out a, a good base knowledge of the background around Zeta and some of the stuff you're working on right now, I, I think one of the things, a few of the things we really got to talk about is the current landscape. Mm -hmm. So with where your focus is, um, can you share what you're seeing just kind of in D.C. around the new administration and kind of just the um, public kind of spheres of influence and what kind of traction you're getting and what you're most excited about moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I think the like, you know, the elephant in the room is, is there going to be a, you know, big build back better uh, initiative to address, you know, infrastructure, jobs, climate change, uh, et cetera. So I think that's kind of the open question. And, you know, even this week, they're, they're finishing up important COVID relief. I think our hope is that there's a quick uh, pivot and turn to infrastructure uh, and, and clean energy jobs and certainly electrification. Uh, that's, you know, I think that's the thing that ev everything else in this space and everything else in D.C. Uh, revolves around that open question. Um, so I think the, the administration has come in. They've made some very... Uh, strong and bold early moves. They've committed to 500,000 electric vehicle charging stations. Uh, like I said, I, I, I know that EPA and the, um, the and NHTSA, uh, National uh, Highway Transportation Safety Administration, are going to be pursuing jointly fuel economy and greenhouse gas standards. And so they're making progress. Um, you know, I think there's an open question as to whether um, you know, there's going to be the will in Congress to, I think, you know, resolve all the outstanding disagreements that happen when you start talking about climate change. And so, um, you know, I think that's why you see, um, you know, the administration talking about build back better and infrastructure and jobs. Um, and everything gets, you know, I think is seen through that lens. So you could be addressing COVID, you could be addressing climate change, you could be addressing, you know, the power sector. And it's all going to be, I think, you know, approached or seen through the lens of how can we make this a stronger, more resilient American economy? With these conversations that you're in, it, it sounds like that the manufacturing, domestic manufacturing is really the big way to kind of get over a lot of maybe the traditional pushback or other issues you run into. Um, is that kind of fair to say? Or what have you found to be like a really effective way to move the conversation forward and really bring people of all different backgrounds together and see the value moving forward this way? Well, so I, I actually think, and I think it's healthy for the democracy. I think one of the lessons that people took from the last several elections is that we need to do a better job of making the case that what, you know, both parties are doing it. Whatever you're putting forward as your top priority, you need to be able to go to people and show that it's going to be good for them and their, their community. And, and part of the reason is, I think, you know, certainly in times of turmoil um, and people are strained, they get uh, especially responsive or sensitive to how is this going to impact me uh, as a voter? And so 
I think if you look at, you know, this, this last election, you look at the northern battlegrounds, so your Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, you look at Arizona, you look at Georgia, there is, I think, a, a, a resonance with that kind of, you know, you know blue-collar, working-class, independent voter who is really, you know, they were trying to, you know, they're working two jobs, trying to put food on the table. And unless you can speak to them in a meaningful way about what you're trying to accomplish, I think, you know, I think you'll be, you'll, you're kind of automatically on the losing end. And so that's why I think both parties are, in, are increasingly trying to speak that language, which I, which I think is healthy. Um, and so, you know, for us, you know, we, again, we believe that electric vehicles address and solve um, a variety of, of our challenges that we face as a country. And it's, you know, it's certainly good for the consumers. Uh, it's certainly good for climate change and for, you know, for, for public health. But, you know, more importantly, as we address all those issues, it is an enormous potential to create jobs and really reshore domestic manufacturing. And if you look back to where we were, you know, 10 or 12 years ago, if you look back at 2007, we got our lunch eaten by foreign imports that were more efficient than, than American-made vehicles. And, you know, that's the really the choice that we face. We can either cultivate this sector and take this spark of American ingenuity and turn it into a true success story, or we're going to be ceding this economic opportunity to foreign commercial interests and be reliant on imports. And so it's not just about today. It's about how do the decisions that we make over the next couple of years impact the next decade? And how does the next decade impact the next three decades? And so it's just really critically important to get this right. And getting it right means getting it right for local communities and, and creating jobs. That's great. And I, I think... Um... One thing to just follow up for my own clarification, I know a lot of the companies that Zeta works with and a lot of the public policy pillars, fun tongue twister there, is kind of around domestic manufacturing. But at the end of the day, it is really about electric vehicles in general. Um, are there any sorts of thing, uh, maybe pushback or questions that kind of come up around, like you said, uh, you've got Hyundai, you got VW, a lot of other global manufacturers are making some actually great compelling electric vehicles today. What are some of the ways that, um, that your organizations may be able to help them as well, just by getting more people in the seats and awareness of electric vehicles in general? Well, the, the ecosystem is actually, it's very distributed. So if you were to look back prior to World War II, you would have seen a, a vast number of automotive companies in the U.S., um, and after the war, that consolidated dramatically. We're now see seeing the pendulum swing back the other direction. And there's, you know, I think the reason that you're seeing the incumbents respond in the way that they have is they're, they're receiving a lot of pressure from insurgent aspiring companies. And I think that's really healthy. And I think, it, you know, when people are clamoring to meet the demands and the needs of, of consumers, I think it's healthy. It's what the market is for. And, and I think that's really where this is going is that, Increasingly, consumers, um, you know, are going to be looking for the vehicle that meets their needs. And you know, I think er early on, and this is you talk about some of the stumbles. I think the stigma of EVs was, you know, it was a Nissan Leaf, and people didn't really envision the ability for their family to, you know, pile in and go to the soccer practice and and all the things that you know you, you do. But now there's these, you know, I think really, you know, competitively priced and competitively capable vehicles that are coming to market. Uh, there's already six or seven that are priced below the average price of a uh, MSRP of a, a internal combustion engine sedan, but there's going to be hundreds of models coming out 
in the next five years. And so I think, you know, and that's, you know, that's both going to be your Volvos and your Nissans. But I think what we're excited about is that, you know, Ford and GM are making commitments, but then you've also got folks like Rivian and Lucid and Faraday and Lordstown and, and, and in kind of the medium and heavy duty folks like Arrival and Proterra, they're going to be out there, you know, answering the question for communities and families of how an electric vehicle can best serve their needs. And that's really exciting. It, with all these kind of different brands we're talking about, there is an interesting um, dynamic because we're talking about now foreign and domestic manufacturers, but we also have within domestically traditional auto OEMs and then also kind of these startups, the Teslas, mm -hmm. the Lucids, the Rivians. And one of the areas where the OEMs have kind of been different than the um, startups, I'm, I don't even know if you can really call most of them startups anymore because of their size, but it's around charging infrastructure mm -hmm. and really making that kind of a seamless experience with that transition to an electric vehicle, making just easy and something you don't have to worry about. And that kind of goes yep. back to that change anxiety thing. Uh, what are some of the things that you're working on at Zeta uh, that you are kind of working towards to really help make that transition around charging infrastructure uh, easier for drivers? Well, so the, it's actually in some ways a antiquated view in that right now, if you if you actually look at the plug, there's really only two plugs in the country, and it's almost like your cell phone, right? You've got your mini USB and your lightning stick, and that's kind of how charging has developed in the light duty side. There's actually more harmonization on the medium and heavy duty side. It's you know we're going to be moving towards a single plug, but even on the light duty side, it's you know it's a, it's 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 two. Most cars come with an adapter, um, and I think you know the market is going to make it even more accessible for folks as we build out the charging infrastructure. So you've got companies like EVgo and EV Connect and EV Box and ChargePoint. And, um, you know, it's going to feel a little bit um, like, you know, I don't know if you've ever, uh, you know, been in the micro mobility or scooter space, but, you know, you're looking at four or five different apps looking for the right uh, place to, you know, to, to get a bike or a scooter. And it's going to feel like that uh, initially on the charging infrastructure side. Um, but, you know, increasingly, I think there's going to be just ubiquitous charging and people, you know, won't think twice about it. Kind of like, you know, we've become accustomed to think about gas stations. Um, charging is going to be the same way. And it's, you know, it for, you know, not somebody that, that, that does it a lot. I, I tend to charge at home, but, you know, I can also go to the grocery store and charge. And I think increasingly, as it becomes normal to, you know, park in a retail setting and go into the store, um, or you're, you know, you're going to be at a movie or you're, you know, you're, you're going to be at school or you're going to be at the, the office. Charging is just going to be an opportunity that you can face anywhere. So I, I actually think in some ways right now it's about sequencing. You know, you want to be able to outpace uh, the car. And so you want to make sure that there's enough charging uh, to support the current vehicle fleet. Uh, but you also don't want to outpace it. You don't want to have so much that you have capital that sits idle and, um, you know, and it's unused. And so right now, you know, we're in a healthy balance. And my expectation is with the right federal investments, we'll be able to keep pace with um, with the vehicle fleet that's out there and, and adequately serve everybody's charging needs. Well, I think that's actually kind of what I'm asking towards is what do you think that that federal incentive needs to be and to make sure we stay at that healthy balance? Because I, I agree with you overall. I think it's not, it, depending on the manufacturer, you run into some issues. Uh, but it's come a long way because I'm when I was driving an EV for the first time, like eight or nine years ago, there weren't any. So it's night and day. And you're right. Majority of the time, people are just going to be charging at home. So it's not a huge thing. But being able to do kind of the great American road trip is a necessity for someone mm -hmm. to really make that switch. 
And I'm, I'm just curious because with um, a lot of these uh, hardware improvements for charging infrastructure, I've been a part of some of these conversations and there's all sorts of regulatory and other issues you just run into. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious what kind of frameworks or how Zeta can help maybe streamline that process and give information to utilities or others to really make it much more of a seamless experience or for people who are curious about putting them in in their gas stations or wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, what what kind of agenda and what kind of um, regulatory improvements, let's say, yep. is Zeta kind of looking to help uh, help push forward? Well, on the incentive side, there's an existing 30C tax credit, which is a, a 30% credit for the cost of installing a charging unit. Um, you know, we, we want to see that expanded and reformed, but there's already a base there and a precedent for it. Uh, what that looks like is, you know, I think, an oper- is, is really a base for a site host, a community, a utility, a third-party charging company to, you know, say, hey, we'd like to pursue electrification and charging uh, for this use case. And it's pretty flexible. I think, again, we want it to be expanded. Um, but I actually think most communities are trying to figure out right now for every sort of capital improvement or upgrade, whether it's building or, or transportation or other sorts of infrastructure, you know, how are we going to make this meet our community's needs for the next 25 or 50 years? And electrification is just going to be part of that. So um, the demand is there. I think the certainly the leadership at the local level is there. And then you've got the right partners in place between the charging companies, uh, the utilities and the site hosts. And so, you know, I, I think the biggest compliment that we can provide to that is a strong federal incentive. The other thing that you could talk about from a regulatory standpoint is building codes. So providing, you know, model building codes. So, you know, let's say if you're building a, a new home, for example, it's just a lot easier on the front end to make it level two equipped and certainly capable of installing the charging. And then for commercial and other uses, um, there's what they call make ready, which is basically all of the architecture uh, that's needed before you get uh, putting the the charging unit in the ground. And so the more of that that gets done automatically as we're pursuing big capital projects, and and certainly the federal government can lead by example, the better. And you're you're just making that adoption and transition to electrification, you know, simpler and easier. That's great. And I I think a big part of that is kind of education to help support that. But I completely agree with you on that. So that that is definitely great to hear. And I, I think the way forward um, so let's kind of look back at everything that's happened in the past year. And I think there's two things, um, really big topics. And one of them is COVID. It's probably the biggest, obviously, that's affected everyone globally. Mm-hmm. And it's been interesting, especially for automotive sales, because when you look at it domestically and globally, there was a huge nosedive in new car sales. However, globally, what's interesting is what actually went out was electric vehicle sales. And there's, there's a few reasons for that, but I, I think a big part was people are seeing when people are driving less, there is actually a pretty strong correlation to cleaner air mm-hmm. among with, um, and then the, the other part of that is, is just, if you're looking at like the average transaction price of cars in general, it's been going up. So it actually kind of does work mm-hmm. for EVs. What, what are you seeing around the conversation of like kind of takeaways or shifts in conversation? since COVID and how that's kind of impacting some of the work that you're doing with uh, Zeta? Well, I think ultimately one of the, one of the most impactful changes is I think a socialization that we need to invest in strategic ways uh, in order to solve our, you know, society's problems. And I think, you know, we're federally 
Um, I, I certainly my hope is that you know we we tend to match resources to problems, and we don't first have an austerity litmus test. I think you know some some of the austerity politics of the past has led to some of the challenges that we face today, and that could be you know a, a, a ailing um, you know infrastructure in the country. It could be you know, certainly a lapse and an inability to address climate change. So my hope is that we're entering a new era where we decide that taking on big challenges is worthy of, you know, of the society that we live in. And if you look back at all of the kind of big upheavals and turmoil that we faced as a country, we've always emerged stronger because we were willing to take big, bold action to address them. And I think Bill Gates did a nice job over the weekend um, on some of the Sunday shows talking about how, you know, the the really the resiliency and the in the impacts that we might confront and the needs for resiliency are going to be far more disruptive if we don't address climate change than what we're seeing with COVID right now. I think the way he described it is, is it'll, you know, blow COVID out of the water, some of the impacts and the, the humanity uh, that we're going to be challenged by. Um, and so, you know, to me, that's my hope is that, you know, people see what a disruption in life can look like. And, you know, it kind of brings to the fore uh, that this is something that's possible. I think we've, you know, we've in some ways been seduced by um, this, this complacency that, you know, we don't need to try hard things and we don't need to act boldly because there's just this, you know, mean reversion of life that, you know, will coast and, and get us by. But when it's been taken away from you, like it has been for so many Americans, I think it's an opportunity for us to look and say, how do we do better? How do we actually invest in our, our communities and, and make smart decisions that, you know, that, that really make that, that sort of, you know, life and, and in pursuit of happiness a reality for folks. That's, that's great. Um, one thing that just kind of popped up in my head is a conversation I've had around um, when you mention infrastructure, like how do you move this forward? Because a big thing that's figured into infrastructure traditionally is uh, gas tax, both on federal and state. Mm-hmm. And they all kind of have different ways to approach it, especially when you get to the state level. But that is kind of becoming a conversation. Um, I think in some ways it has been used almost as a uh, a, a way to kind of push back on EVs than an actual mm-hmm. um, like way to look about how to uh, incentivize them and move them forward. But it it is a valid conversation, especially around like utilities with some of these upgrades they have to make and trying to figure out a way to do these upgrades. So there are EVs can be driven uh, for everyone, but then it's a, usually a cost that's getting passed on to everyone, whether they have an EV or not as part of uh, a rate payer for these utilities. Yeah. Oh, go, go ahead. Well, so the the two points, I guess I'll, I'll start with the utility side. So it is, um, that's one of the kind of the EV antagonist favorite argument is that everybody's electric bills are going to skyrocket. Um, you know, there was an example in the Carolinas where they pursued a pretty robust um, uh, investment in EV charging. Um, they got it approved by the, the, the state regulator. Um, and I think the, the net impact on, on folks' electricity bills was 12 cents a month. So really what we're talking about here, you know, it's kind of a scare tactic. It's cents, you know, per month rather than dollars. Um, and so I think, you know, it's kind of a, a easy foil, um, you know, for folks to go and, and try to, you know, say that EVs are going to be the end of, uh, end of the world. The other on the, on the uh, infrastructure side, you know, I think, you know, we have the ability 
to finance our a world class infrastructure in this in this country. And you know, the gas tax has been broken for decades. And we actually so you know we've severed years ago. We severed the gas tax and its adequacy to address our infrastructure needs. We take from the federal treasury and have for decades money to make sure that um, you know that we're addressing failing infrastructure. And candidly, we've done a poor job at it. Uh, but still, it is it is you know a minority of it is funded through the gas tax. Most of this comes from the federal treasury. And so you know for. One percent penetration for electric vehicles in a lot of regions to point the finger at EVs and say, "Oh, it's the reason the gas tax is broken," is pretty disingenuous. And so, ultimately, I think where we need to move is a vehicle miles traveled, and in, in, in I think a tech neutral way. Um, and, and and ultimately, what you know, what folks have done, you know, certainly state houses across the country. Let's say, for example, your average uh, gas tax that a that a consumer would pay in a given year, let's say, is a hundred dollars. What they'll do is they'll point the finger at EVs and then go charge $150 in an EV tax as a way to address what is the quote unquote inequity in it. But ultimately what that does is it's you know largely driven by the oil and gas interests and the refiners because they see it as an existential threat to their business model and it's just punitive. And so ultimately what we need to get to is a system where you know it's a user fee and we have a you know real conversation about reform. And it's something that everybody contributes to fairly. And, and again, at the end of the day, um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that most people uh, don't think twice about. And we fairly and equitably, uh, you know, resource the, the challenges that we face as a country. And I think that's, you know, that's something that everybody wants to strive for. And uh, it's not terribly complicated, but you've got a lot of political interests that are going to, you know, scrum and fight for, you know, their carbon supremacy over our economy along the way. And I think that's a really great way to kind of break it down because you're right. It's, I would agree with you, traditionally been a uh, fallacy kind of argument made to kind of push back on EVs. But moving forward, um, I think that is one of the things, at least I've been seeing on a state level, is around that uh, miles traveled or how to measure that, um, which is a whole nother conversation to itself. But thanks for sharing. I was, I was curious about your thoughts on that. So we talked about COVID and now to move it to kind of more recent topics, mm-hmm. obviously it's kind of what we've seen uh, in Texas with failures in the grid and issues around charging and how like utilities can look forward to kind of better build more resilient infrastructure, uh, whether that be due to climate change issues or around um, greater adoption of electric vehicles. Can you share a little bit of what maybe those conversations have been uh, at Zeta with utilities and what you're hearing and seeing kind of moving forward? Yeah, I think ultimately there's a lot of lessons I think you know learned from the abject failure um, that the Texas uh, ERCOT and 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 you know and, and communities all over Texas really suffered from. I think the the most important thing to think about is we have the ability, and I think this is just a baseline. We have the ability to serve uh, a load, um, uh, like, you know, from the power sector to consumers. It is a built architecture. Um, it exists all over the country. It is a very efficient way to deliver fuel uh, to heat people's homes, uh, to, uh, to certainly to power their vehicles and to power our economy. What happens is human error. And I think that's ultimately what happened um, in Texas. There was a failure uh, to winterize, uh, it, to some degree, I think it was a, a distinct minority, but a failure to winterize some of the wind turbines. But you know, by and large, this was such a, a cold snap 
that wellheads uh, for the natural gas and other sorts of applications that you know pull up um, uh, water along with you know gas and oil and others froze. And you know I think the numbers that I've seen showed that 80 percent of the the failure um, was actually related to hydrocarbons, not renewable energy, and and not a you know a failure a failure of the actual. Um, the grit, it was just a, it was a generation failure. And so, you know, to me, if, if I'm a Texan, uh, the lesson that I take away from that is one, hey, I'd sure like to be a part of a regional grid and not have uh, a island that I live on for my power sector, number one. Number two, and I think many people are thinking about this is, you know, what, what can I do uh, to have a more resilient personal power experience? And in a, in a I think a distributed energy um, whether that's, you know, wind or solar, um, or certainly, you know, a solar um, plus storage is a is one way to do that. Um, you know, I think, you know, certainly if you look at the peak pricing in a, in a really competitive market like Texas, you know, there are people that got $8,000 utility bills. And so at that price point, uh, it can make a lot of sense to make investments in solar panels or, or, or retail or residential storage capacity. And then that begs the question of how does the car fit in? And, you know, there is some ability uh, to do vehicle to home uh, for power. Um, I think there's probably greater potential for vehicle to grid. Um, so let's say, you know, this was the summer and you have, um, you know, 50,000 um, idled electric school buses that have, you know, strong battery packs in them. There's a way to draw on certainly at peak times, the energy from, those stationary, medium, and heavy-duty vehicles, and to even some extent, light-duty vehicles to serve the grid. And so I think that's part of the potential here is that the more penetration we have with electrification, the more resilient we can make the grid in a host of ways. Uh, and part of that was made possible by a recent FERC order, which was FERC order 2222, which allows us to aggregate that power and sell it onto the wholesale market. And so that's a potential for your battery uh, not necessarily to be constantly cycling and feeding the grid, but your battery at those peak times when power spikes from, you know, $15 a megawatt hour to 300 or to 500 to provide some resiliency uh, to the grid. And certainly if I'm a Texan and, and I've got a, a, um, a variable rate, um, when those when those prices peak, it sure will be a benefit for them to have some storage at the at the residential setting. So I think it, it is going to get people thinking about uh, their needs and solutions in more creative ways. But I think you know by and large, I think you're going to see some reforms in Texas because again, I think most of the failure here uh, was human. I mean, it was certainly a um, a natural disaster and a, and a natural challenge. But again, it was human failure that that led to this. Well, and I think not to make it sound like we're completely picking on Texas, this is something you're seeing even with on the, I'm on the West coast. So we're seeing it with obviously the wildfires. Um, they're different. They're different kind of natural and kind of man-made elements playing into this, but the need for dis, uh, more distributed grid, as well as kind of just more uh, resilient is definitely a big trend we're seeing just across the country. Uh, you, you mentioned kind of the example of, uh, medium duty and someone who kind of works with a lot of these different uh, uh, manufacturers. I'm curious what your discussions have been and where you're seeing the examples of maybe uh, vehicle to grid uh, pilot starts. It does seem, and in my personal opinion, it does seem like the most um, 
the most common and what's going to make the most sense to start with, at least, is probably going to be on the medium and heavy duty side with fleets mm-hmm. versus uh, on the light duty just due to warranty concerns and other things like that. What, have you been kind of seeing similar trends or are there any other kind of conversations you've been having with manufacturers that um, are kind of changing those thoughts? Well, so I think the, the important thing, and this is why I think for quarter 2222 is important, is that it provided for an aggregated, um, um, you know, sale to play in the capacity markets and receive an ancillary service payment for either a positive or negative load that you're able to provide the grid. Um, and so, you know, I think the important thing uh, to me, I think the biggest potential is vehicle to grid for that reason. And, and I, you know, I think vehicle to home is a little more difficult, uh, you know, that constant cycling, I think there is some worry about degradation and what does that do over time? Does it, does your battery range, um, uh, get impacted in ways that it otherwise wouldn't? I think that's what, you know, you've got manufacturers that aren't dying to have their cars used in a way they didn't intend and have that impact range and their, you know, their brand reputation. But, you know, certainly a twice, maybe three times a year pull, um, you know, from your battery in a two-way charging to be aggregated and deliver um, either a positive or negative load to the grid makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, you get paid a capacity payment, you get paid for the energy if you deliver it, but you also get paid an ancillary service. And so if you can aggregate that, I think it's actually a real value uh, to the consumer and can help them, you know, net out the economics of, of going electric. The other thing that I think is, you know, really uh, an interesting part of, um, you know, the negative load essentially is, you know, most people in the summer are going to come home, they're going to plug in their car and turn on their AC at the same time. And if you have a level two charger, you know, m- most people are going to, you know, reach their, you know, their, their, their capacity limit on their battery in an hour or two. Maybe it's, maybe it's four hours, but that doesn't need to be between six and 10 at night. It can be between, you know, midnight and 4 a.m. And so I think some management of when you charge and having that be part of the equation um, so that you can, you know, have a, a relationship with the grid that, again, you know, could, pro- could provide a positive load at times, but certainly in a, in a kind of a demand response space, you know, ensure that at those peak times um, that you're coordinated, yeah, coordinating your energy flow in a, in a way that makes uh, economic sense for you. Um, the, other, the other thing that I, I tend to think about is, you know, if you're running one of these vehicle to grid or an aggregated program, um, you know, there's there's a way for, you know, consumers, let's say, you know, you're going to go do a, a regional analysis and you're going to figure out when do those peak demands happen. And, you know, most likely it's going to be the same hour or two of the day uh, throughout the year, maybe two or three times. And so if you have some arrangement where you're aggregating a bunch of consumers that are willing to be, you know, committed to having their car plugged in for a period of time, again, maybe that's light duty, maybe it's a school bus fleet, maybe it's municipal vehicles, um, there's a real potential there to, you know, create hundreds of millions of dollars of utility scale storage capacity just by coordinating human beings and how we uh, behave. And so I think that's a really cool opportunity for people to make money and for us to make the grid more resilient. That's great. I I think what you're seeing around kind of that uh, interest in vehicle to grid and the overall resiliency. Is there conversations you've been having with the battery manufacturers of trying to get more, uh, whether that be utility or even residential, like what maybe some more pro battery backup or just other kind of grid storage conversations? What what have those been like? Um, and is that kind of 
a separate issue or is that all kind of falling into a lot of these topics? Because I feel like they are separate technologies, yes. Uh, but, but with all these themes that we're talking about right now and yeah. really a lot of the people we have on Grid Connections, it is definitely a strong way of, or a strong part of having to, how we're going to move forward with all these other technologies. Yeah, and we actually just uh, earlier today had a, a conversation with the Energy Storage Association uh, here in DC. But you know they're, they're they are connected. Um, you know, actually one of the one of the most immediate connections, and and I'm sure others have done this, but Rivian has done a good job of marketing the capability. But you know, once a vehicle, um, you know, hypothetically 15, 20 years from now. Um, you know, comes out of, um, you know, its full, its full life cycle. And um, that battery, at least for Rivian, can be pulled out of the vehicle and stacked for immediate baseload uh, storage capacity. Um, so again, the performance may not be ideal for a vehicle anymore, but it's plenty good for your utility scale storage. And so there is, there is a connection there. Um, I think it's, if you think about it, it's kind of second life. And then from second life, you get to recycle. And I think the recycling is really, really exciting um, because, you know, if you can pull out 95% of the critical materials, um, that's not only um, a good commercial domestic manufacturing opportunity, but that's a huge part of the sustainability story here. You can use that same gram of cobalt, lithium, copper, graphite, nickel over and over and over again. And some of the battery manufacturers will tell you that they actually prefer a recycled material rather than an extracted one. Uh, and certainly now uh, the price points can be lower. And so, you know, that all feeds into the same battery packs. Um, you know, obviously they're, the scale and the size changes with utilities uh, use, but they're all connected. And I think they all have the same critical material supply chain. And the more that we cultivate that and secure it, I think the certainly the price points come down, but also so does our, you know, independence and our ability to ensure that this market and economy thrives going forward. Yeah, that's that's also another great point. I, I think the Second Life market, uh, I mean, I'm, you don't really have to go far. You can do a quick Google search or just go on YouTube to see for every Rick Tesla or Nissan Leaf uh, before it's even being used for something like that. People, There's become a huge market for people just going to junkyards and ripping these batteries out and using them in everything from uh, repairing old cars to making them EVs to home systems or even other just random, uh, randomly designed uh, gadgets. But you kind of... A big part of that is around kind of the sustainability uh, part of it, which I completely agree with. I am curious, like when I went to Zeta, maybe I missed it, but one of the big conversations that still continues is around clean hydrogen mm. as a form of sustainability. And I would be uh, curious to hear your thoughts on how that plays into your conversations and how you look at that as part of this transformation moving forward. I think hydrogen has kind of left the conversations really when it comes to um, the light uh, duty. It's still kind of there, but for the most part, kind of gone away. You're seeing it really uh, around trucking and then also mm -hmm. around the grid. Uh, I would be curious yeah. to hear what you're seeing as well. Yeah, in the, in the transportation sector, um, you know, the thing that people have to think about is that, you know, we already have and have invested for, you know, a century into a delivery system for electrons. Uh, it exists, uh, it's already out there. Um, I think to recreate that for hydrogen refueling is just really, really costly. And so I think what you may see is some long haul trucking applications. Again, maybe the weight of the battery pack um, makes it something where it's comparable to think about the kinds of infrastructure investments you may need to deliver hydrogen 
but I think really, you know, where I see the biggest potential for hydrogen is in the marine, um, you know, certainly, you know, potentially aviation, you've got forklifts, you've got some other applications that it makes a lot of sense where, um, you know, because transport is actually a huge cost of hydrogen. I think, you know, certainly co-location where you're creating the hydrogen and use really makes the economics a little easier. So if you think through um, you know, utility scale hydrogen, almost always, um, you know, the folks that are thinking about this in the right way co-locate. And they also, they use it as an energy storage. So it's seasonal storage, it's peak storage. So, you know, you're able to blend um, I think certainly, um, you know, you, you currently can blend about 30% into a gas peak or hydrogen into the mix. I think Siemens has some turbines that allow that, obviously, with some retrofits. I think there's a hope that that gets to 100%. But, you know, hydrogen is going to be a, a huge part of our decarbonization story. Certainly, the more that we promote, um, you know, green hydrogen, where you're taking renewable energy in order to, you know, power the electrolyzer and create the hydrogen. But, you know, I, I don't see it as a um, a pervasive part of our transportation sector. When you think about, you know, most of the, you know, the light duty, uh, like I said, maybe some exceptions in kind of classes four through eight um, and in forklifts and other things. But, you know, I, I think ultimately, you know, kind of your, 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 your big industrial Marine and your aviation, I think there's some hope there that um, it could be kind of that, you know, that final squeeze that we need to decarbonize our economy. Interesting. Okay. Now that's, that's good to know. Um, I guess we're kind of coming up almost an hour here and I, I'm curious to know, um, obviously you're very close to the public and the private side with what you're doing at Zeta. Uh, one of the questions I ask a lot of people who are on this show is like, what would you like to see? And we've, we've talked about a few of these things, but what would you like to most see from the industry? Uh, whether that be innovation in a technology or uh, a more accessible regulation change. I, I'd just be curious to know what you'd like most like to see come from the industry to make it easier uh, for people to get into EVs and have kind of this impact on the grid. Well, I think the, the most important thing for industry right now is to have strong domestic manufacturing capacity. Um, and I know most of the, the companies um, in, in this ecosystem really, really want it. They know there's a demand for it, but part of our struggle is creating it. And I think that is not only a question for critical materials, but it's also, you know, the ability for us to use incentives to build up that, you know, components and supply and, and other sorts of ingredients that go into a vehicle. And so, uh, you know, that's the biggest challenge right now is, you know, I think sometimes without the long or, or strong commitment or runway uh, for a smaller manufacturing, um, you know, component, uh, they're just not really ready to retool. And so I think matching up and sequencing the assembly of a vehicle, the final assembly with the full, you know, integrated supply chain is really what we need to get right. It'll answer the question for how do we best create jobs? How do we support domestic manufacturing? Um, but it'll also... I think fully tie in the political coalition that we need. I think where everybody can see this as a win for them and their family and their community is the place that we need to get to quickest. Um, you know, we've got the right, um, I think, answer, and, and this is the direction that we all need to go. And um, you know, certainly, you know, like I said, it's better for the consumer, it's better for public health and the environment. And I think when we compare that with, you know, clearly showing that it's better for job creation and domestic manufacturing, that's the full spectrum of where we need to get. Great. Well, I, I just want to say 
Uh, thanks, Joe, for coming on to Grid Connections today. For those who are interested in learning more about Zeta and the work you're doing and uh, maybe to become a part of it, where can they find out more and uh, help your organization? Yeah, so Zeta2030.org is our website. Um, we've got our uh, comprehensive 34-point plan, our roadmap to 2030 on how to electrify the transportation sector and would, would encourage folks to also sign up for our newsletter. And we we tend to give them um, not only an opportunity to join us in advocacy, but um, early uh, kind of landscape level political reads of where things are going in Congress and, and where transportation electrification can really be accelerated. Well, thank you, Joe, for joining us today. And we'll look forward to speaking with you again soon. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been fun and, and eager to come back. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to visit our website, connectingthegrid.com. There you can listen to our podcasts, contact us about sponsorship, or even be a guest on Grid Connections. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a positive rating on your favorite podcast or video streaming service. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out a lot too. Thank you again, and I look forward to us learning more together soon.